our text this morning is continuing through the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. I would encourage all of you to turn there. If you have your Bible, it is also printed in the bulletin for you to follow. This is actually a uh, benediction we use to end the service, but I would encourage you not to walk out of the room when I'm finished here. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. This is where Paul has reached a mountaintop experience, expressing the great mysteries of the Gospels. The Gentiles have been brought in because of Christ, and all Paul can do is glorify God from our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. And before we read, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use me and set me aside, that we would be able to open our eyes from your spirit, that we can behold wondrous truths from your word this morning. We pray this all in your Son's holy name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21. This is God's word. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generation, forever and ever. Amen. Many of us love to sing. Many of us love to sing, even if we're not particularly good at it. And sometimes our family is not willing to let us know about this. Many of us think we are the greatest singers in the world when we are by ourselves in our car, when we are in the shower singing to the latest music. Some of us, even in this room, go to school to learn how to be a great singer. They are a great way that we use to express our emotions, even the lyrics themselves, are an expression of the artist's emotions, trying to capture the essence of what he's saying. Sometimes songs have great emotional power. Consider Frank Sinatra, someday when I'm awfully low, when the world is cold, I will feel a glow just thinking of you and the way you look tonight. Sometimes they don't really have too much power, like the Beatles. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Praise is something so often used in scripture, in fact, we even have a whole book based on the people of God singing to the Lord, where the truths of God himself are not just in our head, but are now coming down here to our heart. And that is the very essence of what singing is all about. That is why we even incorporate singing into our worship. And our text this morning, it's not strictly a song, but it is what we call a doxology. 
a praise to God for all that he's done that we can turn to today, that this is the text this morning, is essentially Paul singing the praises of God, of these great mysteries that he has revealed in Ephesians chapter 3. The Gentiles have been brought in. And in these two short verses, a panorama of promises are given to us. They are these promises that we can cling to this morning. And if we were to simply draw out one simple truth for us today, if we were to distill the essence of our text this morning, it would be this. Because God's work goes beyond your comparisons and beyond your expectations, he deserves all your praise for all eternity. Again, if you want the main point of Paul's doxology this morning, here it is. Because God works beyond your comparisons and beyond your expectations, he deserves all your praise for all eternity. Because we actually can break this passage up into two sections that match perfectly the two verses we have. First, verse 20, we see the God who is able. The first point this morning, we see a God who is able. Look for yourself. Read your Bible again. What does it say? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. It is coming in the great context of these mysteries we've been spending week after week, this mystery that the Gentiles have been brought into the family of God. And the only proper response Paul can give to this is giving praise to God. He can't quite wrap his mind all of it. As we said, he's on this mountaintop of experience. And with these two verses are packed all of these litany of truths for us this morning. Because we can make several observations for ourselves just in verse 20. Look and we see observation number one. God is working. Again, observation number one is that God is at work. And when I say that, you may feel that that observation is elementary. It's, it's simple. It, it's basic. It's something that even the children, when we're meeting for Sunday school, can wrap their heads in that. Well, actually, John Stott once said on this verse that God is neither idle nor inactive nor dead. We have no room for a perspective of what culture so often wants to treat God as, a watchmaker, someone that has set the universe in motion. He has got the ball rolling, and now he's indifferent, he's cold, he's detached from his creation. And not only in redemption, of bringing his son Jesus Christ. But even today, God is at work, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he is continuing to build his church. Again, he is neither inactive, he is not idle, he is not dead. He is at work in his church. The second Look at the text again. Not only do we see that we see the one who is able to do, but observation number two, we see that God works beyond 
comparison. Look again, verse 20, to him who is able to do far more abundantly. That is three words trying to capture the essence of one word in the Greek, a word that is the highest form of comparison that an author could possibly give. But God's ways, his purposes, his plans, everything about him go beyond every expectation and every comparison we could possibly imagine. And the second we think that we've gotten our mind wrapped around the work of God, we are left in the same place as the apostle, looking at the great mystery. In fact, this is not the only time that Paul does this. Because when he's talking about the same subject in Romans, trying to comprehend why it is that Gentiles are now being brought in to the household of God, he's left in the mystery. And Paul himself goes to doxology again in Romans chapter 11, when he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In this one verse we see that God is working. We see that God works beyond comparison. The third observation, we see that God works beyond expectation. Because read it again. Look at your Bible. What does it say to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what? Far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. These are moments where God answers far beyond anything we could have possibly even thought. Where we ask to have grief removed from us. Not only is grief removed from us, but God actually uses us as someone that can mentor someone else going through the same grief. These are moments where we ask for grace in a present struggle. And we find later in life that that struggle was actually preparatory for something that God was preparing us for down the road. God goes beyond what we could even begin to ask for. But not only does God do more than we ask, but God also goes beyond what we could even think to ask of him. You can imagine your prayer when you say to Lord, the Lord, I, I, don't even, I didn't even ask for that. And I know this is from your hand. I know this is exactly what you, you were wanting for me. And I know that this is helpful for me. In fact, we even have an imperfect example of this, an imperfect illustration for a holiday we just celebrated in Christmas. Because we, we all know there's, there's different tiers of gift giving. Yeah, I, we all want to accept this. We, we've been to white Christmas or white elephant parties, and you don't really get to pick who you give the gift to. It has to be impersonal. It has to be kind of generic and random. So we stick to things like gift cards. We give candy. We give things that just the average human will probably like, the safest bet. That's, that's white elephant parties. But then you think of those transactional gifts where you, you just simply give your family and friends access to your Amazon wish list and say, this is what I want, and then Christmas comes along, and lo and behold, there it is under the Christmas tree. That you just simply ask for it, and it's there. But then, 
there are those gifts that we've all experienced, hopefully, Lord willing. Where Christmas comes, you're with those who you love. You didn't say anything about Amazon. You, you're not expecting, hopefully, any gift cards. But then you see that present. You unwrap it. You open the box. And it's not so much what's in it, but it's the person who gave it to you. The person who didn't need to have access to your Amazon wish list to know what you want. He didn't even need to ask you what you want for Christmas. That they know you so well that they could just get you something and you see the love that they have for you, the relationship that they can have with you. That they could just get you something. And that is exactly what you have wanted. According to the words of Jesus himself on the Sermon of the Mount, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? What is Paul trying to teach us this morning? Just from what we've seen so far with these observations, what, what is some takeaways, some applications we can make for ourselves? Well, first, this actually teaches us not to be pessimistic Stoics in our prayers. And I actually mean that in the truest form of Stoicism, <clears throat> that we use that word, but the, the school taught that true virtue is actually finds ex- where you are simply accepting external events, whether they are good or evil, And the virtuous person lives in accordance with the reason that governs the universe, and you just gain contentment through whatever happens to you. Your house burns down, you keep a stiff upper lip. You get a sizable income increase, you don't celebrate too much. You don't give yourself over to your emotions. But we can actually see how we fall into this in our own prayer, especially for us who may be reformed in our theology, where Have you ever thought of praying this way? Do you ever have this tendency to pray this way? God, I know you're sovereign. I know you orchestrate everything from the foundation of the world according to your purpose and plan and will. I don't want to twist your arm at all. I want to conform my will to your will, but if you could just possibly, maybe, answer this one prayer request. Dr. Boyce commenting on this passage, says we often are too cautious in our prayers, where we have this almost embarrassment. We're afraid of embarrassing ourselves in front of God. We're afraid of even asking him. But when you read the New Testament, when you look at every time prayer is brought up, that that's not the attitude that Christians have. When you even go back to the book of Psalms, when you see people praying in the Old Testament, that is not the attitude they have. They are not pessimists. They are not fatalists in their prayer. They can come with boldness and confidence into God's throne room. And knowing that when they are in this relationship with the Lord of the universe, that they know that he hears them. This guards us against pessimism and fatalism in our prayer, but not only does this guard us against pessimism, this also guards us against arrogance in prayer, where we treat God more like a genie in a bottle 
who just gives us what we want. This passage in no way teaches what society has called a name-it-and-claim-it prayer. You never heard of the name-it-and-claim-it prayer. Kenneth Copeland gives us a perfect example. He actually is going to teach us all this morning of how we can all pray the prayer of faith. This is straight from his website. Number one, you simply say it. You speak and proclaim what you want. Number two, not only do you speak it into the universe, but you believe it. You believe it will happen. You say it, you believe it. Number three, you receive it. You imagine yourself getting healthy. You imagine yourself finding that loved one. You imagine yourself finding those finances. And fourth, what is most telling about this theology This is his words himself. You act on it. You ask the Holy Spirit to show you how much to act on your faith regarding what you are praying for. Perhaps he'll lead you to give a special offering, which may be your money, your time, your talents, even your existing possessions. I hope we can all hear what is wrong about this, what is unbiblical, what is ungodly that we treat God more like this dispenser of what we want rather than a father to his children. Because we actually are told this actually creates this ungodly disposition where we come arrogantly to him. We are not conforming ourselves at all to God's plan. We are simply coming, (laughs) expecting him to just give us what we want. R.C. Sproul has always said that we can come into God's presence with boldness, but we never come into it with arrogance. So if that is true, if we are to guard ourselves against pessimism in our prayer, if we guard ourselves against arrogance in our prayer, how does this actually work out? How is it that God is working far more abundantly than all we could think or ask of? Well, Paul himself explains In this passage, look at verse 20. Just keep reading. What does he say? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. You've heard that prepositional phrase so often already. You might have been not listening closely to the Ephesians, but you you at least have heard it in the background, according to, according to, according to. Actually, Paul has used this eight times already in three chapters. These are a couple of examples of it. Our forgiveness of sins is according to the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 7. Our predestination from the foundation of the world is according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 11, our transfer from death to life is according to the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe, that power that is at work, that God used in raising Christ Jesus from the dead. That All of these are pointing to two facts that we see that God is at work today. First, we see that God is at work sovereignly. We see this in that phrase, according to his power, or the power is most better seen as God's power. 
is at work sovereignly. That action he uses of raising dead men to life in Christ Jesus is the power he is at work with this morning. There's no twisting of God's arms, his purposes, his plans, because he, as we said, does orchestrate everything according to his will. But this is actually Paul fleshing out the language of that prayer that we've all said together in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That God is at work sovereignly today. Not only do we see he's at work sovereignly, but we also see he's at work personally. Because it's not just his sovereign power, but his sovereign power that is what? It is at work within us. We so often want to have this perspective where we are passive bystanders in redemption, that we are just looking at scripture and we can look at this doxology and say, isn't that amazing? Look at how great the Lord is. We forget that the language here Paul actually uses, the chief means which God displays his glory is actually in us. Do you see that for yourself today? Do you actually, as one who is in Christ, if you have trusted him as your Savior and Lord this morning, do you see yourself as a living testament of the gospel itself? There is... In the words of John Piper, no boring testimony. Because every single Christian is a person that can say, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now can see. We all can say we were once dead in our sin. But now we are made alive in Christ Jesus. Our very existence this morning as Christians, we are Christians today points to this reality, that he is personally at work in every single one of us. With all of these truths packed into this one verse, you naturally want to respond, I would hope, because we've seen the God who is able, our first point, but move to the second verse and we see the second point. We see that this God deserves all glory. The second point, verse 21, this God deserves all glory. We're not content with just giving simple descriptions of the God who is able to do far more abundantly. If we hold to these truths, if you naturally are clinging to this truth of God for yourself, this makes you want to move to praise of God. You want to respond just like the Apostle Paul that not only do we see God is able to do far more abundantly, but we see that this God deserves glory. Because what does he say? To him be glory. We use that word glory so often. If you've been in the church for a while, you may have heard the word glory. You read it in the Bible so often. And when someone were to actually ask you to define what glory is, you, you may pause, you may actually struggle to define it. It's one of those Christianese words that we hear about, we, we, we know about it, but we might not be able to define it very well. In fact, someone in this room actually asked me to define it, and I was taking ordination exams, and I even struggled <laughs> to capture the essence of what this was. Well, at least here today, this idea of glory 
is giving God fame, giving him recognition, giving him the renown that he deserves. He is the heavyweight, undefeated, unmatched champion of the universe that has accomplished this redemption. Because of this, he deserves all the prestige we can possibly give him. In fact, you can see this in Paul's language for yourself. Because where is this glory, where is this fame and recognition found? Paul tells us where it is found. Look for yourself. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. First we see that it is in the church. That God loves his people, loves those who are in this relationship to him. And he uses us to display this glory. Not only have we said on a personal level that we are living testaments of the gospel, but even as a corporate body, we do not meet for an indifferent reason. We don't just come together because we enjoy each other's company. We don't just come together because we enjoy the snacks at the end, although I do enjoy the snacks at the end myself. We don't just come together because we like singing. We come together because of God's glory, because we want to bring God's glory and proclaim it. It is the chief ends and means for which we meet together. In fact, if you were to turn over your bulletin, you would see our core values as a church. And some of them are artistic yet genuine. We are simple yet, I don't have them in front of me, but you can look for them at yourself, even on our church website. This is... uh, from the words of Will Stern himself, from the quality of the music and preaching down to the taste of the coffee, we want to proclaim God's glory. The means for which we are meeting together as believers is to make this recognition of God, to live out the truth of verse 21, to give God all glory we possibly can give him. Not only do we see where this is found, it is in his people meeting together, but it is also found in the very foundation and ends for which the church exists. It is in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus is the embodiment of God's glory, the physical representation of God's glory. This entire doxology is actually moving towards the mystery of Christ himself. We can see that this entire book has been about the unsearchable riches of what Christ has accomplished at the cross. Even chapter 3, talking about that, that great mystery that because of Christ's work in redemption, because of what his death, resurrection, and vindication as the Messiah did at the cross, the Gentiles are now being included, grafted in, that we today are the fulfillment of of Ephesians 3, that this naturally makes us want to praise Jesus himself, that this is the reason why churches ought to not just be God-centered, but they must be Christ-centered that we hope this morning that when you hear the preaching of his word that is bringing glory to the Savior, Jesus Christ, that you are looking to him. It is the gospel that Christ Jesus died for sinners, which is the ends for which God's glory is displayed for all of us. 
finally, we not only see that God's glory, where it's found, but we also see how long it's going to last because that final phrase, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. We stand here 2,000 years after Paul, living as the fulfillment of Ephesians chapter 3, We are able, we are the nations that are able to come and worship and glorify God. In fact, not only this, but Lord willing, if the Lord tarries after Hope Church no longer exists, God's glory will still be proclaimed by the church. In fact, when the new heavens and the new earth, when we are raised up in glory, the chief ends for which we will exist is to glorify God. It will never come to an end. So in conclusion, ending our doxology this morning, here are a few meditations for all of us to reflect on, a few observations. Is Paul's disposition of praise your attitude today? Because this actually happens so often in his letters. We've already talked about Romans 11, but just Paul has this disposition where he will, he'll, he'll break mid-thought. He, he, we can't really discern the exact logical discourse of what he's saying because he'll just break off into a truth of the gospel and begin praising God. He will make up words to try to capture the essence of what his, his thought process is going through. Paul is not someone that is disconnected, detached, and cold from the gospel, Paul is someone that can't help but praise God, give him glory for all that he's done. He is an example of what it means for what we said of going from our head to our heart, of not letting descriptions and information sit with us. Because all of this is great. It's great to study Scripture deeply is great to study theology, the things of God, but the disposition all of us ought to have if we are in Christ this morning is to have this heart of praise where we cannot help but give God glory in the way, in the things we think, even in all of the actions we do. But second, not only is Paul a picture of what Christian life, what praise looks like for us this morning, but he also points us to the God who is able? Is this actually the view that you have of God this morning? We, we've made these observations. We, we've talked about how he is able to work beyond comparisons, beyond expectations. And as we say, that is one of the most simple observations we can make, that God is working. But that actually may be the struggle you're having. That basic truth is what you can't wrap your head around. Is God really able to meet me in my grief? Is he able to answer when I call out? It's not even that, can he answer? Does God even care about what I'm going through? In our response to these doubts and concerns, Paul gives the emphatic answer that this God is able to do. He is able to work. And he is able to work far more abundantly than all that you ask and think. 
He is the God who is able to bring dead sinners to life in Jesus Christ, the greatest miracle today. He is far more abundantly able to answer what we are going through. It may not be what we expect, but we know, as we sang already, whatever my God ordains is right, and that he will receive glory through it. If God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think, is this what your prayer life looks like? Are we too cautious in our prayer, as Dr. Boyce says? Do you have this disposition of a child to a father? Because that is the very picture that, that the scripture gives us. Sinclair Ferguson always gave this illustration of a child crying out to his father when he's hurt. And I, I've heard that in class. And then when I went down to Florida and saw, I was taking a walk, saw a little six-year-old boy on the side of the street Blood was clearly running down his leg. His bike was on the side of the road. And the only thing he kept saying again and again and again is, Daddy, where are you? And within a couple seconds, a man who I assume is Daddy came and swooped in and carried this little boy away. Is that the picture that you have of God to you? Because that is the picture scripture gives us of a father who is there in our weaknesses, is there in our grief, is there in our suffering, and is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think and ask. And finally, in closing this morning, if this is the relationship God has towards his children, do you have this relationship for yourself today? Have you trusted in these promises beyond just the fact that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think? Have you made an honest assessment of your own life that he is far more abundantly to do to actually raise us from our death and sin to this relationship with Christ Jesus? Are you able to be genuine, looking at yourself that you can't, you cannot save yourself, you, you cannot trust in yourself, and yet God is the God who has given his son Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserve for our sins, is now living in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father this morning. We have free access to these promises, but you receive these promises when you have this relationship with God for yourself. And if you are desiring to have this relationship, you can call out to God. Turn from your sins and turn to this Savior and know that he is far more able to do abundantly than anything you could possibly imagine, regardless of whatever you've done. And the only natural response for everything we said this morning is to respond with verse 21. To give him all fame, honor, prestige, and glory because he is able through his power and through Jesus Christ to be at work in all of us this morning. And it is with that that we pray. Father, 
we thank you this morning. We thank you for the mysteries that are found in Christ Jesus, that he came and lived this perfect life that we could not live. He died the death that we deserve because of our sins, and that we have this open access to have this relationship with you this morning. Father, I pray for all of us, any of us that are struggling over your goodness to us, all of us that struggle in your ab- if we feel absent from you, that we know that you are this Father, that you are there in our suffering. Father, I pray for those who are trusting in these promises that they may be able to take comfort in the truth of the gospel that is the greatest comfort in life and death. And in this new year, no matter what it brings to us, that we can rest assured that you are able, you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask and think. And it is because of this that we can give you glory because of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name.